Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, the war against ISIL takes a dramatic turn as the violence against civilians in their controlled areas rise. The leaders from more than 60 nations gather in D.C. to discuss how to defeat Islamic extremism. Is this now a global war? The president loses a key challenge to his executive authority involving immigration as a Texas federal court blocks his legal president's order. Is this a blow to immigration or a targeted hit to the administration? Brian Williams' fallout continues to haunt NBC News and Main Street Media. Combined with the departure of Jon Stewart, hey, is backroom politics the future of media? Is mainstream media in trouble? The Supreme Court will take up Obamacare. Could this be the undoing of Obamacare, or will it survive and this be another smokescreen for the GOP? This, and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You missed a great 15 minutes of great discussion on ISIS. We're going to take it up. We're going to, we're going to try and start this again. First of all, to our listeners out there, we apologize for the technical difficulties. For some reason, we here at Shelley's Back Room have been going through all kinds of technical issues, which we are trying to fix as we speak. But we want to start off and talk about joining me at the table is Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Cubans joined us as well as Alan Moore. And yeah, we didn't even miss him. Nobody heard that he walked in late. Uh, but what we're talking about in a great discussion was the uh, the situation with ISIS. Uh, for those who did not hear us, which apparently was everybody, uh, ISIS. This it was announced yesterday that ISIS had uh, beheaded and, and critically burned. Uh, the the situation, or critically burned about 40 Coptic Christians, Egyptians in the region, as well as the fact that we've got a situation where now the uh, the downing and the and the brutal murder of a Jordanian pilot, the questions surrounding the death of a female U.S. aid worker in the region. There's many, many things going on in the in the war on ISIS, as well as the fact that, as of yesterday, it was announced that the city of al-Baghdadi inside Iraq fell to an ISIS offensive. The, the question that comes up is, number one, can we, in fact, 
deal with ISIS as just a, an American national security threat or as is present now with 60 nations gathering here in D.C. to talk about how to deal with Islamic extremism, is this now a global war? Alan, I'm going to go back to you. Is this now a global war? It sure looks like it, uh, which is why 60 countries show up. The, the, the battle moves country to country. It's moved beyond uh, Muslim uh, Shiite versus Sunni. It's moved beyond Muslim versus two. Uh, these 21 Egyptians were Coptic Christians. Uh, and some very ugly things said about Christians uh, by by the the, the killers. Um, it, it's, it is united some of the countries like Jordan and Egypt, the UAE, who are now flying with their own planes and their own pilots sorties against ISIS. Even at the same time, it's uniting some of the target countries. It's still it, it in its own bizarre way seems to be attracting. New recruits. I think we, during the period of silence, various of us have said, and I'll simply repeat it, we don't understand these people. They speak a different language. We, they're, 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 they're evil in our eyes, but they have some method to their madness which appeals to other folks. And for, for, for us, we don't get it. But, boy, we can't stand aside and say, Oh well, whatever. Not our fight. But you know, when we when we look at Bob Hines, uh, the rise of ISIS, it has now gone into several other regions. What we thought was a contained area of Syria, Libya, I mean, uh, Syria and uh, Iraq, now has stemmed into sectors of ISIS, which now include countries in Libya, Yemen, Egypt, which is a close ally of ours in the Middle East. Uh, this poses a very, very unique and different threat than we've ever seen, even at the high point of al-Qaeda and their mission against the jihadists, if you will, that is America. Well, to me, you know, this is not America's fight. It's, it's the countries of the Middle East. It's the governments of the Middle East that are the ones who are going to have to do most of the heavy lifting. We can be very helpful. Uh, you know our air, our ability to use uh, air air power to damage their their, their uh, groups, you know to just uh, uh, mess them up when let's say a, 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 a area where they've got a lot of recruiting or a lot of supplies we can take things on there but we cannot get we cannot be the ones on the ground they're going to have to they. The Middle Eastern nations are going to have to get together. The Muslims, who are regular, normal, Muslim faith people, all through the Middle East, and their governments have got to become more aggressive because ISIS is really damaging them. They're not after us. They're after them. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with Bob that the that the countries in the region have got to figure out how to step up, even, notwithstanding the, the Sunni Shiite differences, which are very real and very significant. But when Bob said this is not America's fight, I have to disagree. This is very much Americans' fight. America's fight. We were attacked on our soil. Everyone relies on us and looks to us. These planes that the Jordanians and the and the Egyptians are flying are U.S. planes, U.S. munitions, U.S. trained local pilots. 
it's it's not just our fight, and we have to figure out the proper role for us. Um, and and the 59 other countries who are here to participate are going to have to figure out how they can participate, and they are going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, but we're going to have to help guide and and uh, and direct the exercise. Congressman, now. I'm not sure that that's quite what Bob said. Uh, it's certainly clear that it's a very important thing going on to the United States and that we have a lot playing on it. And he was saying that, that we're we're not going to be able to just go in there militarily and solve all these problems, and they've got to stand up for themselves in that regard. But uh, without our support, I think that will never happen. And I must say I'm a little cynical about it happening anyway. Carl Tuvin. One of the things that the that the Arab countries in the area have to do is they really, and especially Iraq, Iraq still is pushing the Sunnis away and and forming their government around the Shiite uh, leadership, and that has to stop. Uh, the other point I want to make is there was something of this morning on TV that the Defense Department and the National Security Council are at odds. And uh, hopefully Ash Carter, when he meets with the president this afternoon, will say something about that to him. Bob, uh, to me, it strikes me that the, the, the fundamental question here is, are the, are the Muslim governments in the Middle East willing to work together, get beyond their disagreements over Sunni and Shiite, which are real disagreements, but they, are, they do not rise to the level of the, uh, the heinous activities and the horrible things that the ISIS gangs are doing. The most important thing the Middle Eastern nations and their leadership can do is unite enough to destroy, weaken, kill off all they can to, the best thing they can do is get rid of the ISIS groups. They're always going to have their disagreements between Shiites and Sunnis, but these should not rise to the level of getting in the way of taking care of a more basic struggle that they've got in the Middle East between the ISIS groups and normal, everyday Muslims. Well, we're going to take a break, a quick break here. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion on ISIS and look at Muslim extremism as a whole. We haven't talked about the situation that happened in Denmark where three police officers and a civilian observer were, were shot and killed. Uh, it is now put a, a uh, satirist from the Charlie Hebdo uh, organization in Paris into hiding. Uh, there is a larger, larger threat that we're having to deal with, including some here on our shores. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Washington, D.C. We will be back in a few minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. 
Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Island Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. You hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, 
Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. It's almost like Isolus hijacking our ability to broadcast. They must really not like us. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelly's Backroom right now, at least. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington. Easy. We're too close to the White House. We don't talk about Fight Club. Hey, uh, we're going to continue the discussion on ISIS. Uh, one of the things that we've got to point out is that the ISIS threat, along with expanding in the region, is another situation that the rise in Muslim extremism is taking a hold globally. We saw the tragic situation in Paris that happened about six weeks ago. Uh, we've seen uh, as, a, as early as yesterday where a uh, member of the uh, Charlie Hebdo organization, one of their uh, one of the Civilian observer is injured, uh, and we keep losing. Today on Blog it couldn't get any, just when he thought it couldn't get any more odd, Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid bring the nuclear option to the Hill. Also, not not, who's there? An acquittal. George Zimmerman gets all, nobody else gets that joke. Really? Really? Nobody saw the trial? It wasn't George, funny in the first place. That's true. So George, Zimmerman, George Zimmerman gets off. We're going to talk about that and race relations uh, in the United States. We're also going to talk about what's happening, the latest coming out of Egypt. This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live. From Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, 
the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Yep, that's right, folks. Believe it or not, we are back live here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, joining us as they do every Tuesday when we're here, it, it, he is the former eight-term member of Congress, representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello. Welcome back. Oh, so good to be back. Nice and refreshed. Recharge batteries. Montana's beautiful. To his left, he is the former floor chief for Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Well, I might say that uh, it was awfully nice to be in North in uh, in South Dakota and having some nice weather. It was 90 degrees and no humidity. Yeah, I loved it. Well, I, I tell you what, being out in Montana, we'll talk about that here in a second. But Montana was just as beautiful. 92 high, 47 low. Yeah. It was freakish. And directly across the table from me at my 12 o'clock, she is the former. She's the former committee general counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. How are you doing? I'm uh, doing fantastic. And to my one o'clock, he is the longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider. He is the former Undersecretary of Commerce. He has served under at least count four presidents. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Oh, I forgot. He's a very refreshed and generous fellow from the Stimson Center. Hi, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, he is the former head of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He's longtime Washington insider, Carl Tubin. Hi, Carl. Hello, Justin. Good to be back. It is good to be back. Folks, we've got so much to talk about. We've got Egypt. We've got the nuclear option. We've got all kinds of stuff. we got crap happening in the Panama Canal that's just unthinkable. But we got to start off with what everybody's talking about, not only here in Washington, but all over the country. It is the uh, the verdict came back in the George Zimmerman trial. For those of you who have not listened to us, not watched the news, basically been living under a rock, uh, George Zimmerman was accused of second-degree murder in Sanford, Florida. Uh, he's accused of murdering 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Uh, he, was, uh, he had been tried on Saturday around 10 p.m. after over 16 hours of deliberation. The jury came back with a not guilty verdict with George Zimmerman. That has subsequently started a whole new realm of talks that are going on. Will he file? Will there be civil charges? Or will there be a civil case against it? Will the attorney general get involved? We're going to talk about all that, but let's first talk about the verdict and the case itself. Uh, it, is, it is hard not to have been watching television without seeing news about the Trayvon, Mur the Trayvon Martin murder case, the George Zimmerman uh, self-defense case. Uh, we've got two attorneys here around the table. I'm going to start with you, Denise. Uh, Denise, a lot of people are now criticizing the state of Florida and the district, or the state attorney's office, uh, the special prosecutor that was appointed by Governor Rick Scott to prosecute this case. Uh, there are a lot of people now saying that they went in there with a weak case to begin with and that this was politically pressured to go forward. Do you see any accuracy in that? Well, that sounds like a lot of folks sitting in a armchair doing back, you know, Saturday morning uh, quarterbacks, like getting my, you know, sports analogy right. I, to me, I'm 
not going to call it a weak case. I'm not going to call it a, a political case. But I did have a question, to be honest with you, about the makeup of the jury. It, it was my understanding that they had only six people on that jury. Correct. And those six, I think maybe five out of the six or six. All six were female. All six were female, and the majority of them were white. And, I, I mean, I'm looking at it from the legal standpoint, going, okay, legally you can do this, but optically? Why would you set this up this way? I mean, it, it almost, it, it raises... Well, we're, we're, going to get, we're going to get into that, but the, let's talk about the case itself. Uh, Bob Hines, not sure how much of the case you saw, but uh, it, it just seemed that uh, a lot of people had said that the, that the state had overreached in trying to go after second-degree murder charges. You had a police department that investigated, and they found no basis to bring charges forward. Uh, that, in their opinion, in the investigation, the evidence substantiated self-defense. The district attorney in Seminole County uh, took the case. He said there were no uh, no reason to bring charges forward. It was only after political pressure. But even then, it just seemed that the state was behind the eight ball from the beginning. Do you see that being the case? Well, it was, you know, I, if, if because I was away, I didn't, watch nearly as much of this as I, might, as I might have. But my my thought from the very beginning was that it seemed to me like it was almost like he said, she said. You know, it was a question of, there wasn't a lot of evidence. There was a, there was a death. How it happened, exactly what, how it happened is, is still probably in a lot of people's minds unclear exactly what happened. But it wasn't, a, physically, it wasn't a strong case to begin with. And from that standpoint, uh, I mean, I'm I'm somewhat surprised that um, that uh, the the jury came back as rapidly as they did. Only, only I think sixteen hours. Sixteen hours, which is not a very long time, no. which, particularly in a case where so much of it was disputed rather than clear cut. So you know, to me, it was a case that uh, that was, was probably very difficult for the for the prosecution to begin with. They didn't have. A lot of evidence to go on. There was a lot of discussion, and there was a lot of ideas about who was on the bottom and who was on the top, and who hit who first, or and why it, you know whose whose wound was it, and whose voice it was on the on on the cry for help. It's, it, nobody could decide specifically who it was. Now that's a exact, perfect example of the case itself. There just wasn't enough evidence to convict, and that you have to have enough evidence to convict when you're talking about a murder trial. But it, 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 seems, it seems to me, Congressman Al, that, that it, it, it's almost like Governor Rick Scott was bullied into bringing this case forward. You had a district attorney who uh, who is elected uh, by the electorate in the 18th Judicial Circuit uh, down in Seminole County, uh, a noted, noted prosecutor who could not bring charges forward, didn't see the evidence. It wasn't until Rick Scott appointed a special prosecutor in the state attorney uh, that it, it just seemed like the state of Florida was bullied into this. Is, is that accurate? Well, I don't know whether I'd use the term bullied, but I think that anybody can look at this, and we may be talking more about this later. This is the kind of case that's going to get people excited, and it's going to do that largely along racial lines. And I think some of the people that were most disappointed at at the fact that he was exonerated were the people who brought the pressure to increase the charges beyond that which could be sustained. Uh, had they not done that, it may very well that uh, he, he could have been found guilty of manslaughter. Alan Moore? Yeah, it, it's 
what a tragedy all the way around here. I mean, you've got you got a young guy, young kid, dead. Never can change that. Just a horrendous loss to family, friends, community, and obviously there's larger implications that we'll get to. George Zimmerman was no big winner here. That guy's going to be looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life, um, which is not to say that that. Uh, uh, that that he didn't do things wrong too. There were mistakes made all the way around. But what 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 we're reminded of here, watching this, is is how the how the law works and how courts work and what the what the the, the standard of proof is. And you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt of particular activities. And the prosecution was unable to do that. I think that, that Al is right. That, that, that There was a lot of pressure to, to, to bring some kind of charge. The locals looked at the situation and, and decided not to bring charges, and that created an uproar, which led to a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure on the governor and otherwise. Now, he turned it over to a state's attorney um, who, I, I was, you know, I'm no expert on this stuff, but I was reading what Alan Dershowitz said, and Alan Dershowitz is a noted uh, a defense attorney uh, teaches at Harvard, um, and he said that this woman, he was very aggressive. It's quite interesting. This woman is known for grandstanding, the woman yes. who brought the charge, known for overcharging, that is, charging for more than what the facts will bear. And then there was other questions of misbehavior, the, of, of, of evidence that was being withheld from the defense that could have exonerated him, prompting Dershowitz to say this woman should be disbarred, that which is, is really a fascinating kind of sidebar, but it speaks to what what was in the evidence, how the courts work. It, there was a, there was going to be reasonable doubt from the outset, bec- or there was going to be doubt from the outset because there was no eyewitness, and there was and only one of the two people involved and, and, survived. And by, by the way, two things. One, you're, you're talking about Angela Court, the, yes. the, the, yep. the, the specially appointed by Governor Rick Scott, yep. um, Angela, uh, Angela Corey, uh, she's, been, she's been in Florida prosecution circles for years. Those are some strong words coming out of Alan Dershowitz. They are. They are. And I, I don't know enough about it, but I was fascinated that, by, by his I've heard uh, his similar rumors on. buzzing out of Florida. Denise Krep. Dershowitz, lovely. He's at Harvard. Great. You're smart. My problem out of all of this, quite frankly, is that this didn't happen in a vacuum. I, I mean, the South is still very raw. We may have just celebrated 150 years of Gettysburg, but racial relations haven't improved. I mean, a week, you know, or two before this decision came out, my daughters and I were at a Fourth uh, of July parade where a farmer literally had in his left hand a Confederate flag, in his right hand a U.S. flag, pulling a tractor with a sign on it saying, hug white people, with the sound of Dixie going off. So if, by the way, that wasn't the only Confederate flag I saw over the past two weeks. If you are a black person who lives in the South, do you really think that you are equal if you are looking at a Confederate flag? If you are living in an atmosphere where people, and I asked them the question of, what the hell is going on down here? It was, well, that's just this city. Well, if that's this city, then do you trust the people that are prosecuting in that city? I don't. But you're not talking about you're not talking about rural, you know, North Carolina. You're talking about a very transient, 
a very diverse population in, in Seminole, in, in Seminole, in Orange County. Absolutely, I come from there. You know, I, I, I spent, I, you know, I spent my high school years there. Still moved up here from that part of Justin, Florida. But I was in, in I, I got to tell you something. I didn't, not in that part. If you had said the Panhandle, yes. If you had said Zephyr Hills, probably. How about Miami? Miami? Where I came out. Liberty City? No, I'm talking Coconut Grove. Coconut Grove, come on. Coconut Grove is about as diverse as liberal as it gets down there. Well, come on. Okay, so. Well, let me go to Carl Tubin first. First of all, I think the prosecution that let the jury, the complexity of the jury be what it was, was wrong, number one. Number two, I heard uh, after the trial that the um, uh, Zimmerman was known to go around taunting African American children, and and now why something like that didn't get into the because that's hearsay, Carl. That's well, hearsay. Carl, it might not have been hearsay. It might have been people who actually saw it. But there's no Carl, there's no Carl, there's no court Carl. in America that will allow that in this evidence. I have read thousands and thousands of words about this case. I have never heard that. Doesn't mean that somebody didn't say it, but that's clearly yeah. not part of the normal narrative. I, I want to I want to say that after, something after Yeah, but a lot of, you know, very little yeah. sort of came out afterwards. Anyway, you know, I I want to both agree with Denise and take issue with one thing she said, nothing's changed in the south. I think a lot of things have changed in the South. I, my, I, my late wife was from South Carolina. I spent a fair amount of time down there with her, and we talked a lot about how things used to be, how things have become. Having said that, I completely agree with you that racism is alive in America, not just in Miami, the Panhandle, the Carolinas, but in Boston, in Chicago, in Los Angeles, in Washington, D.C., well, it well, is alive. It I'm, I'm going to talk about that in the next segment because this this has obviously brought up a much larger discussion of race relations in the United States and how far exactly we've come. We're going to come back in the next segment. But I want to talk about this case right now, though. When you look at this case, you have a, a – first of all, the state's case had witnesses – that were just horrible. In fact, a lot of the witnesses that the state called in front of the jury were more helpful to the defense than it was to the prosecution of, of, of Zimmerman. Uh, Bob Hines, you think if, if Rick Scott had to do it all over again, he might have reevaluated this? I have no idea what's in the what was in the governor's mind. But you know, I can understand his problem. I mean, the local people didn't want to do something. The local authorities, uh, the local citizens, a lot of the local citizens wanted something to be done, and then he was in a situation where I think he made the right decision. We've got we've got to have some closure on this matter. We can't just let it stop where it is right now. Well, let me ask you a question. Let me just jump in here for a second. When a governor can appoint a special prosecutor to bring charges against a potential defendant, does that not just violate one of the key tenets of our society of, of checks and balances? Now, he didn't he didn't appoint a special prosecutor to make up evidence. He appointed him to take a look at the case and see if there was enough evidence to bring the case to a jury. But this and, is and, after and, yes, an elected district attorney and after a sworn law enforcement team of criminal investigators investigated the case 
and said there was no evidence to bring charges forward. Now, no, they said there wasn't enough. Now, the point is, what the what the governor was doing was making sure that the final decision nobody could say, well, it was a local community. There was a there was, there's racial problems here. We we didn't get a fair trial. So what he made sure was you got a full and square deal on the trial. All the evidence that could be as, as, could be accumulated could be developed on behalf of a a, a serious charge against Mr. Zimmerman was available. To, to the prosecution. If Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, uh, Mark Morial, if they don't show up in Sanford, Florida, does Rick Scott appoint a special prosecutor? You'll have to ask him. I don't know. But, 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 but it's not, not a valid question. It doesn't matter what he felt. It doesn't matter. He was going to feel pressure regardless. We've got a phone call. We've got a phone call. Okay. We'll get back to that. Caller from the 717, you're on with Backroom Politics. Hey, guys. Uh, Mike from Pittsburgh. Mike, how are you doing? Good. Hey, um, I, was con- I, I kind of understood these uh, the protest march and everything, but Saturday coming up now could get very interesting. Um, Sharpton's putting together, I guess, 100, 100 different cities here, um, marches together. together. Um I kind of get the feeling, and, and I'm kind of neutral on this George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin. I kind of think there was fault both ends. It, it was kind of uh, circumstances went wrong. But I'm kind of worried about Sharpton here, you know, getting on TV saying that he doesn't want any violence or anything to come about it, but yet he's organizing these protests after this stuff's starting to break out in L.A. and some of the big cities. It's almost to me like he's saying one thing on TV and really wishing for another to happen on Saturday. Well, I mean, this goes back to my this goes back to my original point. That caller, Mike, thanks a lot for calling in. Um, you keep me on. This this goes back to uh, this goes back to a whole other situation where again you've got Al Sharpton who made this a very key point, threatening boycotts in Florida, saying telling everybody saying, look, don't go to Florida, don't go to Seminole County. Because because they're not prosecuting the case, and it seems like it was almost economically driven pressure from the governor's mansion to say, well, we're going to have to bring a case, whether we win or lose, we're going to have to bring a case forward. No. Why? No. Why? For what I said before, you wanted in a case like this, you don't want just to have the local community make the final decision because there's so much heat going on. You bring in an outside prosecutor appointed by the governor to find the facts, decide whether there's enough evidence to, to, to bring a, a case against Mr. Zimmerman, and if there is to do so, but you want to have an outside expert take a look at the evidence and make that decision. What, what, the governor then, then did why, the right thing. Then why thing. elect a district attorney? Then why even have a district attorney? Because in the local community, it would be reasonable for some people to believe that pressure was was going was pushing the, the local prosecution one way or another. This way, they go outside. Uh, it's a bunch of outside experts, outside lawyers coming in. The governor appoints them. They have no skin in the game in this case. They're trying to find the facts and what the truth is, and they did as good a job as they could do. 
And I'm okay with having the protests. I mean, I think that if you can organize the protests and if they are peaceful, then it lets people express themselves. It lets them say, I have an opinion, and it lets them say it in a peaceful well, way. Then I where is the check and balance? Where is the separation of powers? That Al Sharpton wants to have a No, no. When the, governor, when the governor says, I want, to, I want to appoint after... After a after sworn law enforcement, after an entire criminal investigative division in Sanford Police Department says, "Hey, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I you know, we've investigated. There's no, there's no evidence." Because sometimes you have to pull it out of the local hands, and sometimes you have to say exactly what Bob said. You have to have a neutral party because if you don't have a neutral party, people are going to believe you're going to have conspiracy theories and others say. Somebody screwed this That's up. That's the truth. I'm that guessing. I'm guessing. There, I'm guessing there were a lot of locals who breathed a sigh of relief when the governor took this over, given all the noise, all of the threats, all of the protests, all the discussion of boycotts, they were thinking, great, turn it over to this person. Now, did, did, did the governor, who acted completely and totally inside his authority, this wasn't usurping something in an illegal way, he stepped in. He, it sounds like he may have picked the wrong person to have a look, but I don't know about that. Um, but 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 by turning it over to this third party, if you will, who had was a state's attorney, had had experience and some level of credibility, probably more then than now, um, and she made the decisions on what to charge and how to proceed. That didn't turn out very well for that side of the argument. But if you if you took your argument or what sounds like your argument. Uh, to its logical extreme, you'd say, well, then the Justice Department shouldn't be looking at this either because the state's already decided. Well, the Justice Department's been looking at this thing from the beginning. But the Justice Department, the Justice Department is looking at it from a different aspect. It is, but... It is but, a different angle. Well, it, is not, it is not trying to enforce criminal law in Florida. Well, correct, because that's been settled. And Double Jeopardy says nobody else can agreed, take a look. Agreed. But... but you know, Florida is Florida. They've got their own procedures. They have some backup opportunities. The governor stepped in, acting within his authority, appointing this person to bring fresh eyes, take a look, make a judgment, make a recommendation, and we went down that particular road. But I don't find it uh, some uh, inappropriate wrong usurpation by the by the governor. It was a way for everybody to buy some time. Now, we're back in a, in a different place and a difficult place. And uh, with regard to the caller's comments about, you know, 100 cities, uh, we'll see what happens. But, but like Denise said, this is America. If you want to protest, if they want to protest, protest, that's fine. I, I if have you, no problem if with you, that. If you become violent, uh, if you incite violence, which I don't think Sharpton is doing. No. Um, I'm no big fan of Al Sharpton, mind you, but I don't see him, and I've listened and watched and so on. Um, now, violence is always a possibility if you've got angry people and getting stirred up and who knows what's what's going on, but that's just a chance we take in a, in a free country. But I don't have any problem with 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 with. Ten demonstrations, fifty, a hundred, two hundred. I don't think any of us have a problem with the demonstrations. What I have a problem with is when you can, when when we start succumbing to political pressure to enforce laws that have, that 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 are put into place by those elected to create those laws. When we start usurping political pressure into the judicial process, we are taking away a key separation of power. What you're saying is, 
the local people, no matter what, ought to make the final decision. And that is not always the right thing to do. The governor did exactly the right thing. Yep, he I tried to cut down I on the emotion. I think you're at gun five to one yes. here, Judge. No, 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 no. no, no. Al, I, I think you're on their side. Uh, I, I just think that this argument uh, is going around for the fourth time. I think everything that's been said was said a long time ago, and I think we should move on. Wow. Al does not like this topic at all. It's finished. It's finished. Okay. Well, well, because then we get into a really bigger subject. We got to talk about race relations. I mean, well, there's well, no there, question. There are aspects. There's of the a case that we can still talk. We're about. We're still going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about that in the grander scheme of race well, relations. But, but I mean, there's been talk about the jury, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, we can talk about and, that. And I think that's an interesting question. Well, and I was I was interested because some people said, "Gee, six seems small," and it seems small to me. Now it turns out from some experts on, on, on TV that if it's a capital murder case where where a person could where capital punishment could come to be, then it requires a 12-person jury. Right. But for the long time, the state of Florida has had six-person juries. Um, both sides, as we all know, when they're setting up the jury, have, some, have, have uh, uh, ability to object to particular people. I would hate to think and here's what I'm really getting to here. Um, six women, one was a minority. I would hate to think we have to have some kind of diversity requirement beyond the ability of counsel on both sides to object to particular people that even then we're going to complain about about the makeup of juries. That just bothers me a lot. But, I mean, my, my problem with the makeup of this jury is that it did not reflect the population of the county in which the, the trial occurred. Well, I mean, if you're supposed to be have a jury of your peers, a jury of your peers, as much as I would really love this for us all the women, mean, it doesn't have that. It needs to be a little bit more. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Denise, Denise, you're an attorney. You, they went through Wadier. They had the opportunity, both defense and, and prosecution, had the ability to screen the jurors, and these were six mutually agreed to jurors that sat on this case. And somehow, for some reason, and I hate to say this, I'm betting they were trying to appeal to the mother instinct. The mother instinct it is a very different one than you'll have to the Well, then, 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 that, then that's the state's one. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I—it's just—it just—I just think trying to second guess what both the state and the defense decided on setting up a jury, and after the fact saying, you know, we're not comfortable with the result, therefore we're going to be critical of the whole process. That ended up with an all-women jury. Right. That that uh, it just it just troubled let, me, let me for us to make those kinds of judgments. Let me let me just say this. I I, I think look. And, and, and we'll talk about this next time because we're coming up at the bottom of the hour. The fact that Trayvon Martin lost his life is a tragedy, absolute tragedy. I think what happened in this case, there is blame to go around for everybody involved in this case, both the Zimmerman and Martin. Uh, it, it, that, that is a given. A 17-year-old boy should not have lost his life in this case, period. He did, it's tragic, and the court has spoken. But I, I do want to talk about some of the other aspects of this case uh, when we come back, and that will bring us into the larger race card issue that we're going to talk about in the second segment. But can I leave one final last, last, last word. An area where I think we can all probably agree. Neighborhood watch programs where concealed carry of weapons is also present 
is a very very dangerous dangerous. Right, right, not I, I I do not I absolutely do not approve of that. I think that is a that is a mistake waiting to happen. That is an absolute mistake waiting to happen. So when we come back, we're going to continue talking about the Zimmerman verdict, the national implications, and the bigger question is how far have we really come in race relations here in the United States? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town You can call in toll-free, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. We're continuing uh, coverage of the aftermath of the verdict in the George Zimmerman trial down in Sanford, Florida. Uh, George Zimmerman found not guilty on second-degree murder charge and the lesser charge of manslaughter, uh, which has spurred up all kinds of discussions. Alan, we, we, we left the last segment, and we were going to continue on with the discussion now. We left the last segment with you talking or talking about some of the other different nuances 
of, of the trial. Uh, the jury, for example, we covered a little bit of the, of the jury. Uh, we, we haven't really talked about the tension between the judge and the defense attorney, namely between uh, the judge and uh, and defense attorney West. Yes. In Zon West in in, the, in this issue, uh, did that strike you as odd? Yeah, it did. Uh, it, it also reminded me that when we televise these things, we don't always, you know, it's not all positive. Uh, sometimes the way things work uh, it can be very confusing when you get it in drips and drabs. Um, and, the, and, the, and the judge, I don't think West covered himself in glory at different times, nor do I think the judge uh, was always covering herself. I think I, I wanted to say though, with regard to the to the to the to the court case and the charges, you know, we've talked about this notion of overcharging second degree murder, which just seemed to be a stretch from the outset when you read it. When they when they added manslaughter at the very end of the trial, after after George Zimmerman had decided not to testify, which seemed a little bit odd, um, it, it, it turned out when you read that. The penalties for manslaughter, when a gun is involved, can be up to 30 years too. Right. And it's it, 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 and it's not that different, as my in my reading, uh, from from second degree uh, murder in terms of some the intent of of the person of the of the of the perpetrator, if you will, of the shooter. And it made me wonder whether there was some other charge or charges that would have better fit. For example, for example, I was I was just reading about a case that involves a second-degree manslaughter charge against a woman who was driving and texting and ran into a motorcycle that was part, it was stopped at a, at a red light, killing the driver. Obviously, she was negligent and she contributed and she was careless. She didn't set out to kill this, kill this guy, but she was doing something that, in this case, I think texting while driving is actually illegal. Um, and second-degree manslaughter is the charge, and they're trying to work something out. And it would seem to me that if there had been a charge that wouldn't lock Zimmerman up for 30 years but might put him away for two or three... Well, there's a problem then, in Florida. Okay. There's, a, there's a problem in Florida. Here's why. No, no, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I want to sort of address the, this. The big picture that if there had been some way to penalize... He's, he's penalized for life, don't get me yeah. wrong. But if we could have locked him up for two or three years... He might be better off in the long run because the sentence would have been justice. There's a problem in Florida done. because Florida has an odd, it's not odd, it's actually, if you're pro-law enforcement, a very good law. It's 10, 20, 30 life rule. It's that if you if you use the, a firearm in the commission of a felony, it's an automatic 10 years. Whatever they charge you with, they can charge you with jaywalking. It's automatic. Any felony. No, but jaywalking is not a felony. felony. You, yeah. They can charge you with any right. felony, and you will do a minimum 10 years, even though the felony charge may not require, it may only require three, minimum 10. Yeah. If there is injury involved in the use of a firearm, then it's a minimum 20 years. Okay? If there is a death involved, it's 30 years to life. So, regardless of the felony that they brought forward, anything that they would have brought forward would have been 30 to life. And I think that that had, that had to weigh on 
the jury in when they're charged in this. Now, where I think it got odd is when the state came up at the last minute during considering lesser charges, the third degree murder based on child abuse charges. Bob, that just seems like they were just grasping at straws at that time, at that point. A child abuse charge for murder? Well, I suspect it was a desperation effort to make sure they got a conviction. I expect that's what it was. Denise, you agree? Yes, and, but and whoever was supervising this attorney, because even though she may have been making decisions, she was reporting to somebody. Well, she was reporting to the attorney general. My question would be, why didn't you do some of this prep work ahead of time? I mean, if you're a good attorney, you want to game the system out. You want to know where your strongest points, your weakest points are. And if you, you know, it's sort of like playing a chess game. You've got to think five steps ahead. And why are you where you are in this trial not thinking five steps ahead? It doesn't make any sense to me. But, but Bob, you've got to ask a question. That when, when you see the verdict come down, there's no question. This was a white man who killed a black 17-year-old teenager. We, <laughs> what? Well, he, he went from Hispanic to white Hispanic to now white. I didn't say Hispanic or white or anything. You just said white man. You said a white yeah, man killed. Yeah, yeah, but I didn't say Hispanic before. No, no, no. But I'm saying that he he's he's half and half. Not unlike Obama, right? Half white, half black. Okay. And and he's half Hispanic. His mom's Peruvian and half white. And then that, that's okay. a whole side issue. Okay, wait, it's a Hispanic man who killed. Is is he is how does he? Claim, I mean, then we gotta go back and look at how does he claim himself on a he, tax form? He identifies himself as, as Hispanic. Hispanic. He does. Okay, yeah. great for him. Yeah. Whether it's Hispanic it's or the media white, that whether started it's, calling him a white Hispanic. I don't care whether he's a white Hispanic, a purple Hispanic, or a blue Hispanic. The reality is, what you have you have an adult male who, who killed a seventeen year old teenager. Whether he's white or black, tragic. But what's happened now is the media has now inserted race into this issue, which brings me to my next point. Is but it hasn't inserted race. Race has always been an issue. Why? Okay. Absolutely. You cannot tell me. You cannot tell me that race. You, you don't believe that race. That the race card has not been exacerbated by the media. That's a different question. That's a different question. Race was there from the it's beginning, and yes, it was exacerbated by the minute, okay. the minute the Fair event, enough. The minute the event happened, race was in it. Period. If nothing had happened except, you know, they took they, they slugged each other, race might have been part of it because one of them is white and the other one is black. If the murdered person was black. You can be any other race and you have the same property here. Right. So let's move on. Al is really not like this conversation. <laughs> but I mean, it's got to be talked about. I mean, the reality still dictates is that you we now have a question of was this racial profiling? Was this a racial card that was played in the jury? Was this does this now demonstrate that we are not as far along in race relations as we were 20 years ago? Al, go ahead, Congressman Al. I've been waiting for this part of the conversation. We are a lot farther than some people think, and we are not as far as we should be. And I find Shelley's to be a very interesting little microcosm of, of the positive side of that. If you come into Shelley's at almost any time, about a third of the patrons are black. Shelley's is not a cheap place to drink. You know, it's not a tawdry bar. It's a it's a classy bar, 
and uh, you, you have to you have to have a certain amount of income to come here. If you sit down, and I've sat down with dozens of them of the, the black patrons here and struck up conversations and what have you, you will almost, in, at some point, you will get to where he says, well, my dad used to tell me, my dad always said, you know, these people came from workable families, they went to college, they've got good jobs, and they uh, are not part of any problem. The, 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 it's 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 southeast where you don't have any fathers or where there every every child in the family has a different father that kind of thing. So there's still problems within the black community that they can solve uh, with with education with education. Well, well, wait, 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 wait a minute! I haven't said anything all all day. <clears throat> I think that that uh, this occurred that, that the level of racism in the country is because there aren't enough whites who know enough educated blacks to be able to distinguish. I think they still down in their hearts will say I'm not prejudiced but what they think of black people is decidedly different than you will find among the black people here in, 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 in Shelts. And that is inherently Racism, and that is what is still hanging around. The fact he had a hoodie played against him in the white mind, and other things like that. But, so sure, there was racism involved in this. But, but and I want to say this right now: there are some that would consider what you just said racist. The in fact, what, what the fact that you said I talk to black patrons, not just patrons. There are people that would sit there that would say, "What you know?" Discerning, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not belittling you. I'm just saying. To make my point, I couldn't. I had to say they were black patrons because I was making a point about what they were saying. Their father told them. I agree with you, Al. But I'm just I'm, what I'm saying, and I'm saying this just for the broader discussion is there are people that would have considered what you said racist. Uh, there are people that said, "Why do you have to differentiate?" I don't think if you I don't think if you talk about race in this society today you can avoid being called a racist by somebody. Denise Crap. Just um, when I went to high school in North Carolina, we had uh, we just returned from Germany. My, my parents were in the military at the time, and uh, went to a high school that was 50% black and 50% white. So this is 20 years ago. My classes, however, were 98% white. This is a statistical anomaly. Except for the fact when you realize that I was with the white kids because the white kids were considered smart and the African American kids were not as considered smart as we were. So, and that was going on not only in high school, but that was starting out in the elementary school. So, if you've got a 40 year old like me, and they're now the mayors, or in the case of, you know, the new Secretary of Transportation who grew up the same system that I did, if that's what you grew up in, you know, and you were the ones making the decisions, that's what some of the decision makers look like now in the South. And until we get people to integrate in school levels, you're going to have this consistency of racism keep perpetuating. I think I think that that is a gross generalization. I think that is a horrible generalization. I have been in the deepest, darkest, most redneck part of Georgia, Florida. I've also been in some of the most progressive areas. Boston, for example, you want to talk about segregation? Boston takes pride on its segregation. You go into Dorchester, they don't want they don't want segregated schools. 
They fight against segregated schools. And Boston is considered a progressive you know city. What, Justin, I believe that, except for the fact that on July 4th, I watched the guy with the Confederate flag with his hand and American flag with his right you're hand. Gonna find that. You're going to you're gonna find it. But I think it's a gross, I think that's a gross generalization. I, I honestly do. I, I think that you are not giving the progression. Are we by are we by any means complete in you know at a point where we can just not have to talk about it because it's a non-issue? No. But are we where we were back in '62? Not even close. No, we're not calling African Americans boys. What we're just doing is we're not letting them into our garden clubs. We're not letting them into our schools. We're not letting them into different things that we want to do because the older generation, that one I love, is going to be upset. I, I, I find that a gross generalization, Bob Hines. Well, I can't. Wait a minute. <clears throat> a generalization, uh, perhaps, gross generalization is idiotic. Uh, it, 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 it is a generalization that I think holds true as a generalization. If you want to take every single instance and deal with it separately, fine. But as a whole, what she says is correct. Now, let me tell you how, how it affects white minds. Mine, in an instance. I took my great-grandson to his daycare center. My gracious, there were lots of little black kids running around. I happen to know what they're paying for that because I'm paying the bill on it. And it's like $1,000 a month. And I, I said, do they have a subsidy here for poor children? And they said, no, 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 no. There's a large professional black community over there, lawyers, doctors, what have you, and these are their kids. My assumption was they had to be poor to be there. What? That is But why, would, why did racism. you make that? What, that you're claiming racism? Well, doesn't that make being you happy? About it. He's no, acknowledging happy. some of his own tendencies, which and, and are a product of a lifetime. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not proud of that, but I think it's right. a point that that it's valid. Lots and lots of white people. Give me. An, I'll give you another example. I learned at my mother's knee that black people were equal to me. I don't know where she got it. She grew up in Colorado. She didn't know any black people. I, I was just taught that. Then I went to school, particularly about junior high school, and I found it wasn't true. Well, now, I didn't understand that they, you know, they were all down living in converted World War II housing for the poor. There probably wasn't a book in the home. Who knows if there was a father? I didn't understand all of those sociological aspects. It wasn't until the 10th grade when the professor, we were studying Julius Caesar, and the, and the teacher wanted a debate between somebody who would defend Mark Antony and somebody who would defend Brutus. Well, I've always liked the more intellectual side of things, so I volunteered to protect Brutus. Mistake. It was a black girl, whom I never got to know well, who volunteered to represent Caesar. Caesar. Not Caesar. Mark Antony. I said it wrong earlier. Well, she wiped up the floor with me. I mean, she cleaned my clock, you know, and I remember sitting there saying, oh, that's what my mother was talking about, you know. And then I began at that point in my life to meet educated black people and found that they were not very different from me in any significant way. 
too few white people have had opportunities like that, in my judgment, and that is the reason it is so hard to wring racism out of our society. And more. And uh, notwithstanding that lifetime of experience at your mother's knee and in school, you still acknowledge, and I credit you for acknowledging something that a lot of us have in a in a passive way, but wouldn't really want to acknowledge your reaction when you went to your grandchildren's daycare center. You know, one of the things that that strikes me on the bigger, the the larger implications of all of this is that there's this pent-up anger among many African Americans, and whether there were those who were wealthy enough to hang out here and buy expensive liquor and cigars and take their kids to expensive daycare, or just middle class or lower middle class African Americans is they are all deeply resentful of a world they live in in which they have to give special instruction and guidance to their male children in particular about what to do when they go out in public. How to dress, how to act, where to go, what to do if confronted by police or other authority figures, never to run, always to be polite, and they, 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 they teach them that because they know that those kids are at risk, that the world tends to look at them with suspicion. Um, if they look a certain way and if they carry themselves a certain way and if they're a certain age, it's, it's that might be a criminal, that might be somebody who can harm me, and these parents have to drum it into their kids that they that they live in a world where that happens. That saddens me. It saddens me a lot, but it's the world we live in. And that was at play, I believe, that night in Sanford, Florida, where Zimmerman looks at this kid, he looks out of place, the way he's dressed and carries himself, and Zimmerman is going to track him. He's on the phone. He's not going to. He's not trying to go kill him. He's on the phone. He's trying to get the police to come. Trying to get the police to come. Trying to get the police to come. And the police are saying, "Yeah, we're coming. We're coming. You don't need to follow." Him. Um, and and he's got it in his mind that he's going to be a policeman and he knows how to handle this. At one point. He gets out of his vehicle, and a confrontation occurs, and we don't know who did what to whom, except that we know that Zimmerman shot Trayvon. But but that world that 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 black Americans live in, and that black parents live in with regard to their ch- children, just <coughs> saddens me. It's it's something we have to work on so much, and there is a lot of racism. That, that feeds it. But there's also facts. Black kids are six times as likely as as, as whites to to be convicted of crimes. Um, there would Richard Cohen wrote a column today that, that twenty five percent of uh New York City uh young people are African American. They commit eighty percent, seventy eight percent of of gun violence. So we need to acknowledge the facts, even as we need to acknowledge there's a problem. So it's you know we don't we 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 have to understand that some of our reactions have a factual 
basis, even if we hate it, hate that. Okay. And I, I got to jump in. Carl, do first. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 Carl. Carl, go ahead. You've been waiting. You've been waiting. I was just waiting. watching. Uh, uh, Eric Holder just spoke at, uh, probably still was speaking at the NAACP convention, and he said that he, he he even had to go to his son and talk to him about the same things that, that you've been talking about. And he he also mentioned that he's been racially profiled since being attorney general, that his car was searched uh, uh, with him standing there. Uh, he also called for. What was his driver doing at the time? <laughs> yeah, that's my question. <laughs> smoking smoking pot. But he also called, and I think the president alluded to this, is, is that we really need a national conversation about all of this, and and to try to 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 see what can be done in situations like this. Um, unfortunately, I heard on the radio. Um, coming down here, that uh, eight African American boys beat up a a fellow who was a Spanish American, and, and and that hopefully that can can be hopefully it can subside and not to break out into anything more. But it's, we're very we're very on very shaky ground here. Let me let me jump in on this, and and, and maybe maybe. Maybe I've lived a charmed life. Maybe I've lived in a, in, a, in, a, in a secluded world, in a naive world, where, you know what, it, I make no bones about the fact that a majority of my friends, from particularly here in Shelves, uh, are African American. I, I am, in, in numerous, numerous times here in Shelves, the only white guy sitting at a table with all, with all African Americans. They're all black. Uh, I don't look at them as black. I don't look at them as African American. Uh, maybe that's naive in my world. But when I talk to other white Americans, particularly those from middle class, I find, and maybe I've just been lucky, that there is a there is a sense of we've gotten more colorblind than when we were 40 years ago. Is it changed completely? No. But when I hear that, uh, you know, that, that race is still the major, major problem. And again, I'm white. I'm a white middle class male. You know, have I, do I, do I, do, am I, do I experience prejudice? You know what? I do experience prejudice. I'm six foot three fifty. I'm, I get prejudice all the time for my size. Am I self-aware of it? Yes. Do I make a big deal about it? No. That makes them, That makes the person who says that thing ignorant to me. So I mean, well, I'm the one I? that it's, it's been made the bad joke. So no, 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 no. I'm not talking about you. I'm, no, I'm talking about people that, that have been that have been malicious about it. There are people that are malicious about somebody of, of size. Hey, you know what? I'm very self-aware of it. I I get it. I just look at that person as ignorant. What I don't see is. And I take full personal responsibility for me being my size. Now, a black person can't take personal responsibility for who they're born, but what we do see is, you know, there's a, there's a certain inherent personal responsibility that if you're confronted by somebody as a neighborhood watch, walk away. Trayvon Martin had four minutes to walk away. As evidence brought forward in court, he did not. He, he, he chose, 
Zimmerman had the choice to observe and let the police handle it. They're trained to do that. He chose not to. The discussion that has not come up in any of this is the personal responsibility of walking away. And that has not once come up in this discussion. You will find if you just turn an eye and say, you know what, you're just ignorant, I'm walking away. This solves a lot of problems. But we don't talk about personal responsibilities. Why is that not part of the discussion? Uh, I'll take personal responsibility. And you know what? Sometimes you do have to walk away. But sometimes you actually have to stand up for others that don't look like you. I mean, like you, I'm white. But, you know, I had a really interesting um, incident happen in my mother's house about 10 years ago. My godmother is Mexican. And uh, my mother had a party. My godmother was there. My mother's friends showed up. They thought my godmother was the maid. Do you know how embarrassing that is to have your godmother, people to assume that your godmother is the maid because she's Mexican? Yeah. Okay. But that person's ignorant. No. These that are person fluent. It doesn't make them not women. ignorant. Yeah, you're right. It but doesn't make them not stupid. Right. That was 10 years ago. Now, what we do is we just keep seeing continued ignorance. And at some point you have to say, when do we change the ignorance? When do we say, this is not right, not only not right, but it's not right for my kids to think this. Congressman Al. And I think that we really need to redouble efforts to bring decent education to Southeast or wherever it's needed. Uh, I think education and full stomachs and, and this is something that maybe the NDABLES ACP and other similar organizations could help with, but holding black families together uh, those kinds of things that were the difference between the kids that I thought weren't as good as me and the young woman who, who swept up the floor with me later. Yeah, I can guarantee you her house had books and had discussions at dinner and all of that kind of stuff. Until you, it is, I, I believe that there is a responsibility of the black community to help itself. And I don't know exactly how one does that. But when Bill Cosby says stuff like that, he's chastised by his own by by people of similar color. Yes, because in the black community there is also a kind of mindset that I think needs adjustment, just as there are mindsets in the white community that need adjustment. And I was just suggesting one of the adjustments. Carl Tubin. Yeah. You know, much as I hate to say this is there's a lot of African Americans of my age and, and 20 years younger, who who thought that when the civil rights thing came, it was going to free them to do a whole lot of things, and, and they would be able to progress and make money and do all kinds of things. And they're frustrated because they have it. And a lot of these people, I, I believe, you know, kind of say to their children, watch out. Uh, this isn't the world that we thought it was going to be, and watch out. And I think it's going to take another 50 years before everyone is educated enough before integration really which is which has helped a lot but before integration really uh, gives us the promise of a nation that is one people I think in, the ideal was something that my four-year-old granddaughter said when uh, her, her uh, when she was with a black guy that was a good friend of hers took him out playing golf and whatever. He was an adult. And somewhere along the conversation, somebody said uh, that this guy was black. 
And she said, he is not black. He's brown. Well, she she was telling the truth as she saw it, and, and there was there was no racism involved. She was too young to have been inculcated right. with that yet. Alan Moore, I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, okay, a little. Uh, this is a only very very indirectly related little funny story. Okay, that I was reminded of when when Denise was talking about about the situation in, in her home. It's, it has to do with Lee Trevino. Now, Lee Trevino, for anybody who doesn't know, is Mexican-American. He was one of the country's great Raised golfers. Grew up in Texas. Uh, Got struck uh, by lightning in Chicago. He, he, uh, but he won. He, he, he played against uh, Nicholas and Palmer, won some majors, and, and is one of the funniest guys ever. He tells a story on himself. He became wealthy, and he lived in a big home in, uh, in the Dallas suburbs. And... He was out mowing his lawn one day, and a lady in a Cadillac drove up, rolled down her window, and said, uh, excuse me, how much do you charge to mow lawns? And he looked at her and thought for a minute, and he said, well, the lady that lives in this house lets me sleep with her. That is a great story. And the lady drove, drove off. Away. That is a great, great story. That is a terrific story. Uh, when, when, when we come back, I mean, this is obviously something that's not going to go away. And, and we can continue the discussion. We'll talk about it over the break. Uh, when we come back, we may still talk about this, or we may go on to other things like the nuclear option with Harry Reid, which apparently may have been diverted, but uh, maybe not. Uh, we'll talk about that and, and more of the Zimmerman coverage when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Law Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to change the pace a little bit and get back to something a little bit more lively, something a lot more idiotic, and that is the discussion in the Senate, basically discussion, garbage. It's the showdown between Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell. Uh, Harry Reid, as majority leader, has pledged that he will take up the nuclear option which means that a simple majority can confirm a uh, presidential appointee or will he will take away the ability to filibuster an appointee debate in the Senate and he'll wipe out on, on an executive on appointment. An appointment. You've got to be clear about this. And that will do away with any possibility of them filibustering any appointee that's sent up by President Obama in the White House. That took all kinds of ammunition, put it into the barrel, and shot it across Mitch McConnell, the minority leader's bow. Mitch McConnell responded, saying that he is ready to go to war. Congressman Allen conveniently forgotten that the, that the issue, the, the, the technique, the nuclear option, was originally brought up by Trent Lott when he was the Republican leader. Uh, correct, correct. So the irony in all this just makes it even more idiotic. But what we now have is we now have a very serious showdown going on in the Senate. Number one, let's look at this from McConnell versus Reed, Reed v. McConnell. Uh, Harry Reed is serious about the Zuga option. It looks like that a deal may have been struck, Alan Moore, but it's not out of the woods just yet. Well, yes, it looks like they've struck a deal because I think cooler heads have prevailed on this. Two... Reed talks about invoking the nuclear option, but if you know anything about Senate rules, it's not at all clear how it would work. In times past, they've talked about trying to change the rules at the very beginning of the session. That was what was talked about, uh, changing the the filibuster rules more broadly. Um, And once you're in the middle of a session, it seems pretty, it's always seemed pretty clear to me and people who know more than I know that it takes two-thirds of the members to change the rules. So, in effect, what, what Reed was somehow proposing, and, and people like 
retiring Democrat Carl Levin of Michigan, very well-respected guy, is, I think we should change the rules, but not by just breaking the rules. He said, I think we should find a way to get the 67 votes, change the rules so that uh, that nominees to executive-level appointments would be assured of a vote in a reasonable period of time. I think there are Republicans that would that would agree with that. Certainly, in times past, they've they've talked about it. What's not at play right now is lifetime, i.e., judicial appointees, um, or changes in legislation. So, I think what we've got here is a deal that gets us through this particular point in time, um, and hopefully, conversations on the side, and maybe this particular part of the rule does get changed. But, but Congressman Al, just when we think that there might be light at the end of the tunnel in the political rhetoric coming out of Congress, namely the Senate agreeing on immigration, putting a bill forward to the House, just when we think there might be some hope, they take ten steps back and then shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, the, the, the political rhetoric putting out, being put out by both the Reed and the McConnell camps are serious business. Why is this such a big deal, and why is this nuclear option? Well, the nuclear option is because both parties have taken turns when they were in the majority of blocking uh, a number of things from an administration of the other party, particularly appointments to various offices and <clears throat> appointments to the administration. Judicial appointments, which uh, I, I understand isn't covered by this possible agreement, and, and we're in desperate need of filling a whole bunch of judgeships. Uh, so so it's like the two parties, when, when, when they change the majority, they, they hand, as they walk, as they change offices and they walk from one side to the other side, they hand each other their, their playbooks so that the Democrats will do exactly what the Republicans had been doing when they were in the majority. And vice versa. It's ridiculous. And I think that, that it is the filibuster itself that is the criminal. I think the Senate is the least democratic democratic institution on the face of the earth. And I think the, the uh, filibuster should be abolished. Short of that, I could live with it if they'd go back to the days when if you were going to filibuster, you had to hold the floor <clears throat> until you fell down or somebody else would, would relieve you because you could have a few people filibustering. But they ended. I mean, a filibuster always came to an end and the majority could work its will. But I have no problem protecting the rights of the minority, and if the filibuster is the way to do it, fine, but don't make it so that it becomes a veto in the hands of the minority. But Bob Hines, what we're, we've got two serious situations here. You're talking about, one, the cherished filibuster rule in the Senate, and two, the ability of the president to put into place who he wants in his administration. Both very, very sensitive issues, but it seems like there's a lot of flip-flopping going on. We saw it with, with the Bush administration when Republicans in the Senate said, let the president put in place who he wants, and the Democrats would filibuster. The Senate does not want to give up the filibuster, but there's no way they're taking away the ability of the president to nominate who he wants. Well, the president 
absolutely has a right to pick the executives that he wants to run the different departments and agencies, et cetera. And that's what they're trying to deal with right now. And I think Alan laid, the, the, laid it out very clearly at what's going on. I think. Alan Moore, yeah. let's remember that the Constitution says the president shall bring forward names with the advice and consent of the Senate. So it's the Constitution that brings the Senate into the picture. If, if, if that weren't true or if we really wanted to change that and give the president his or her people, then we can change the Constitution and remove the Senate entirely from the picture. But but the Senate is not a rubber stamp. That's, a good, that's a good idea. Yeah, good luck with that. You know, and good that, luck it, with that. And, and that's fine. And we, you know, I don't. <laughs> I, I want to respect what Al said earlier about about not wanting to to beat the same horse over and over. We can talk about the filibuster writ large if we want to. You guys know where I'm coming from. I have a different view than Al. I don't think it's nearly as harmful as he does, although it clearly is being abused more and more and more. With regard to making people stand up and talk, that is within the power of the majority leader. But Alan, Alan Moore, you have, you've been around the Senate for many, many, many years. Yep. The filibuster has been the rite of passage in the Senate, a tool to be used as part of the political process. The Senate refuses to give it up. They threaten to, but they refuse to give it up. Why are they so steadfast about giving up the filibuster? Well, the, the filibuster exists in order to protect minority rights. There are various supermajorities that are required in our Constitution. It takes two-thirds of the members of the Senate to ratify treaties. The Constitution is filled with language that Congress shall pass no law, it's, which means if you want to pass a law in particular areas, you've got to change the Constitution, which means three-quarters three of the states have to ratify. So, you know, it's not like this notion of protecting minority rights is somehow new and different. Having said that, it is absolutely true, as Al, as Al says, that the use of the filibuster has become more and more routine, and, it, and, it's, and it's people have found new ways, both parties, to figure out how to take advantage of of the, the filibuster to delay and delay and delay things they don't like. It clearly is ripe for reform. And at the beginning of this Congress, you may remember, a deal was struck between Reed and McConnell on ways to bring up bills that uh, if when, when there is resistance by the Republicans. It was creative. It was a major important change because what's, what was happening is what everybody blames the, the minority for filibustering. What the what the majority was increasingly doing was calling up a bill and setting it up in a way so you didn't have open debate or the ability to amend. A lot like the way the House works, which is a big problem in the House. So it, it's no wonder that everybody in the Republican Party, from from the the farthest left to the farthest right in that party. And there were people, there are a few people still to the to the to the middle or left of center who said, "I don't like the way the majority is trampling on our ability and giving us no chance at all to amend." So, he, so there's that those 
there's some ability now for that to occur. Denise Crack. When you ask the question of why does the Senate want to protect you, I think one of the reasons is because the Senate has flip-flopped between the Democrats and the Republicans more often than the, than the House. I mean, the, the House flipped, well, flipped in the 1900s three, four times? That's all. That's it. Whereas, it's, oh my, a maybe dozen times a dozen Senate. times in the Senate. So they know, in regards to the Democrats and the Republicans, that they need the filibuster. So that, that institutional history is there, so they're going to want to protect the filibuster. Now the question is going to be, if you can change it from the legal perspective, boy, would I love to see a, a lawsuit on that one. Because I would love to see the judicial system try to decide whether or not if Reed was to do this, if he could change the rules in the middle of a session. Usually, it, again, it has to happen at the beginning. And if you do it in the middle, what would the judges say? Purely hypothetical. But, but, but Bob, when we, when we talk about the filibuster right now, and Alan, I'll get back to you. When we talk about the filibuster right now, you know, Alan brings up a good point when he talks is the Senate is constitutionally bound to advise consent. But at what point does it stop? Because, at what point does advise consent and hindering the president's ability to govern intersect? Well, it's, well the, cons, the way the Constitution set things up, and I, I don't recall, I, I think it was, I'm not sure which founding father said it, but, you know, the view was the House is a hotbed, and it's a cup. And it's the saucer, which is the Senate, which is to cool things down and make sure that things happen and move forward. And, and we, need, we need to remind ourselves that the Constitution, the basic law and the statute of this land, is, it's, a, it's probably the most uh, perceptive and intelligent statement of how to run a government, maybe in the history of man. Now, that said, we live in a time right now where we, you know, we, we have, be, for uh, reasons that we have often talked around here with redistricting and other things, we push, we push the, the, the political structure away from moving toward the center to moving toward the left and the right. And that makes it more difficult for our system to work as smoothly as it should. But the fact of the matter is, I don't think that I want to see the filibuster rule disappear. I would also like to see something that, that Al said. It would be nice if you're going to filibuster that you had to stand up and talk. I think that's that would be, if we go back to... Kind of like the Democratic senator in Texas did for 12 hours. That's exactly down. right. The idea is to use it the way it ought to be used. It ought to be used to be a tool for the minority to, to, to do everything they can. And let's face it, while somebody is up talking, there's a whole bunch of people... In the in the cloakrooms, trying to figure out a deal to make something go forward, and I'm sure Alan has seen that more times than most of us. Right, ever. Alan Moore. Well, as I said before, the majority leader can force people to talk anytime he wants to, totally within the power of the majority leader. Why don't they do that every time? Because they know that they look like idiots in in the in the public eye, but it's within their power. So. So it's not as though you can't do it. You can do it, and it's up to the majority leader to to uh, to that force implies it. They don't look like idiots already. <laughs> well, <laughs> not in their minds. Wow. Yes. Who loves the Senate? Senators. Senators. Yeah, true. Denise Krupp. Well, here's just an inside baseball question. You know, the deal that you were talking about that they may have struck was going to deal with EPA, the debt administrator, 
as well as Secretary of Labor. As well as the Consumer uh, Protection yeah, right. CPA. But on last Friday, Napolitano announced a resignation. So does that deal cover the, the new Secretary of Homeland Security? Well, that, that, we haven't even talked about that. Thanks for blowing my thanks for blowing my tell me a story. But uh, well, you haven't. I still got the story. You're a little late. Yeah, I think that. No, 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 no,